This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. There are other technologies that endeavor to um, improve the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, essentially different modalities that, say, take a larger surface area of the esophageal lumen itself to um, have more shots on goal, as it were, to get to the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Um, the tissue cipher test does not change the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Everyone who gets the tissue cipher test has Barrett's esophagus. Everyone, at, whether you're low risk or high risk, you still have the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. What the tissue cipher test is, is doing is essentially improving the accuracy of risk prediction to progression to high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma in patients who have already been diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast presented by Tissue Cipher from Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Matthew Goldberg, who is the medical director of Castle Biosciences. As we know, people with Barrett's esophagus are at a higher risk to develop esophageal cancer. And it's always been challenging for physicians to determine which of their patients are at greatest risk. Tissue Cipher is a test developed by Castle Biosciences to help stratify risk in Barrett's esophagus patients. I'm excited to speak to Dr. Goldberg about how gastroenterologists can better detect earlier stages of Barrett's esophagus and associated dysplasia that can present as esophageal cancer. Dr. Goldberg, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. Well, it's uh, an interesting topic and uh, timely because of changes that we're seeing in guidelines. Um, tell me, though, I see that you are a dermatologist, and people are going to wonder, what, what, why would a dermatologist want to uh, get involved in esophageal cancer? How did you get into your current role as medical director at Castle? It's a good question, and you know, by training, I'm a, a dermatologist and dermatopathologist. And uh, in my clinical practice, I worked in academic settings as both a clinical dermatologist and dermatopathologist prior to joining Castle Biosciences in this capacity in August of 2020. I uh, had gotten into dermatology and differentiated into dermatopathology because I, I really liked some of the translational research questions that you can access uh, through dermatopathology and uh, specialized in melanoma epigenetics and translational research in that space, which really led me to the role that I have as medical director uh, at Castle Biosciences. And it's been an incredibly exciting part of my work here to deepen my understanding uh, of gastroenterology in the GI space, particularly around Barrett's esophagus and there, there are actually more similarities than you think in dermatology and gastroenterology in some sense in that, you know, we both focus on uh, the, the uh, epithelial tissues, uh, me on the skin side and, you know, in the GI side, really on the, the digestive tract, obviously. But I think that there's a lot of similarities actually in, in how dermatologists and gastroenterologists also approach patients with both, um, you know, impactful disease states and thinking again about how new molecular tests can be impactful across a range of medical specialties has been a, a really an exciting por portion of what, I, what I'm up to here at Castle. 
Well, it's it's uh, very interesting. You know, I I trained here in Washington at the um, at the VA hospital where squamous cell cancer of the esophagus was very common, um, large numbers because of smokers and uh, ethnic issues. Of, uh, every week there was a squamous cell cancer, and it was interesting because squamous cell. Let's see, wait, that's what's on the skin. That's uh, squamous cell. But at the uh, GE junction, at the gastroesophageal junction, we see a, a different problem. Um, your your thoughts about that particular area, why it seems to be so prone to uh, cancer and bear, and what Barrett's esophagus means there? Yeah, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting in some of the prevalence patterns that we're seeing, or rather the, you know, the incidence of, or the rise of esophageal adenocarcinoma that's been quite striking in this country, and, and I think around the world as well. And its location there at the GE junction, I think, likely has to do with chronic exposure um, to stomach acid, right, where you have uh, an increase in many of the risk factors that predispose individuals to esophageal adenocarcinoma that uh, are becoming increasingly common. Um, Based on diet, lifestyle, and uh, other aspects, but I think that there, I think it's really that anatomic change um, at the GE junction that predisposes to the precancerous um, intestinal metaplasia that you see as the hallmark of Barrett's esophagus that really affects that particular aspect of the lower esophagus. Well, um, I can tell you that as a gastroenterologist, it is a it's been a challenge, you know. We're we're working in a environment now with limited resources and uh, rising costs of healthcare, and and one of our goals is trying to uh, use resources in their most where they can be most useful. And uh, Barrett's is pretty common, but esophageal cancer is rare. And um, you know, how does one patient with Barrett's esophagus of you know two or three centimeters? differ from another patient with Barrett's esophagus of two or three centimeters, how, how can I decide which one to focus on? Who's going to get into trouble? Um, and that, and again, one of our issues is, is we have to be uh, thoughtful about how we're spending money. So that's been, that's the biggest challenge I think we see in, in Barrett's is, is, uh, is that. Um, so the, you've been working on tests that's obviously predictive or hopefully predictive. <laughs> can, yeah. can you explain how that works? And um, can you explain the term space, spatial omics or spatial omics? Absolutely. There's a couple of questions in there, and, and I think I'll, I'll I'll start you know starting at what I see is in some ways some of one of the big challenges in Barrett's esophagus and in esophageal adenocarcinoma, kind of more broadly in the sense that. I kind of view the space as Barrett's esophagus is in some ways the, the tip of the iceberg in identifying and helping to stem the tide of the rise of esophageal adenocarcinoma. And thinking about that, what I mean is that most patients who go on to develop esophageal adenocarcinoma, um, actually somewhat around 90%, have not been diagnosed previously with pre-existing Barrett's esophagus. So most patients will present essentially late in their disease course with dysphagia or some difficulty um, swallowing in, in some ways. And so they present at a later stage. And so in some ways, our current paradigm for, for screening patients, for entering patients into triage with gastroenterology is, uh, I think there's a big push to essentially increase the number of people who are screened 
who could be at risk for esophageal adenocarcinoma and including some of those risk factors um, that may predispose individuals to esophageal adenocarcinoma, not only those individuals who have Barrett's esophagus. So I think there's kind of a, a parallel path that's happening in the GI space uh, of an increased desire to screen more individuals who could be at risk for developing esophageal adenocarcinoma. And, and when I think that one of the the knock-on effects of what will happen if we, as we begin to screen more individuals, that we will, of course, identify more people with Barrett's esophagus. I think highlighting the importance of the point that you're talking about, how do we get the right treatments to the right patients? How do we surveil most appropriately the people who enter into our surveillance programs once they've been diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus? So I think that that's, that's the starting point where you know, we are screening people who are at risk for esophageal adenocarcinoma, and there may be in the coming years even more people who enter into those screening pathways and then more people who are identified with Barrett's esophagus uh, after that screening, initial screening has taken place. Does that align with how you see the field moving as we, we, we try to identify more people who could be at risk for developing esophageal adenocarcinoma? Exactly. It's, it's, um, it's trying to stratify patients. So, you know, we do the same thing with inflammatory bowel disease. Which, which patients are going to get into trouble, which, which are not going to get into trouble? And is there, is there a predictive risk model that we can use? So with tissue, with tissue cipher, you, you, is, is tissue cipher just a cellular examination? Is it more of an algorithmic combination of tests? Exactly. So going back to that pathway that I, that I was mentioning, so you have a, a funnel approach where more people are being screened. Tissue cipher enters after you have an established diagnosis, a tissue-based diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, indefinite for dysplasia, or low-grade dysplasia. So that's the prerequisite, is that you have seen a gastroenterologist, you've had a, a, an endoscopy, and you have a, a, a histologic diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus in one of those three types of dysplasia. And so at present, you're routed into essentially the, the risk stratification paradigms that, that come with the identification of no dysplasia or low-grade dysplasia or indefinite for dysplasia. And there is risk stratification that um, is provided by the histopath assessment of dysplasia or lack thereof. But what tissue cipher essentially does is improves upon the accuracy of that risk stratification uh, because the tissue cipher test itself is run on the formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue sample that's obtained as part of a gastroenterologist endoscopy sent to pathology and a diagnosis is returned. So these are patients who have uh, an assessment of their esophagus and whether or not this dysplasia has been seen by the interpreting pathologist. And so while there is risk stratification inherent in that identification of the presence or absence of dysplasia, um, the clarity is is not as clear. There is not as much clarity in that distinction as you can obtain with a, a tissue systems pathology-based approach, a spatial biology approach that you, you mentioned of tissue cipher. So what that means is that the sample that's sent for tissue cipher is, is um, evaluated with nine relevant biomarkers, and then an AI classifier evaluates the relative uh, intensity and location of these biomarkers in relationship to where they are in the actual tissue that's submitted for pathologic review, and a validated score is returned, the tissue cipher score itself, to then uh, inform subsequent management decisions by the treating gastroenterologist. So it works in concert with the diagnosis that you receive from the pathologist 
to essentially improve the accuracy of risk stratification for the patients that you're treating with Barrett's esophagus. And I think this is critically important back to one of your earlier points, is that most patients who have the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus have non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus. And so most people, we, we don't identify the presence of dysplasia. And essentially they're all assumed to have a low progression rate, but the group itself is quite heterogeneous. And there's a, a, a non-trivial portion of patients who don't yet show dysplasia who actually have a significant risk of progression to high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma. And, and I think that's highlighted by the fact that in our current paradigm of risk stratification, of the progressors of people who present with esophageal adenocarcinoma, they initially presented with non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus. And so I think there's this opportunity to identify, in particular in non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, who, who are the individuals who might not have a low risk of esophageal adenocarcinoma progression, and you might actually be able to identify prevalent disease or a significant risk of progression to high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma, and the published literature for tissue cipher demonstrates the test's ability to do so. Yeah, one of the issues that we come across is obviously we always worry about sampling error, right? You mm -hmm. may have uh, uh, three, five, seven centimeters of Barrett's and, and we're taking little pieces from spots. Well, what if I miss the wrong, what if I miss the spot? Um, uh, and there are lots of guidelines as to, you know, how you should collect samples. Is, is tissue cipher partly dependent upon the, the volume of samples that are sent or is it, uh, should it be more of a scraping cytology type uh, collection of specimens? Right. I think that's an important distinction. So the tissue cipher test uses the samples that the gastroenterologist submits for diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. It's, it does not. There are other technologies that endeavor to um, improve the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, essentially different modalities that, say, take a larger surface area of the esophageal lumen itself to um, have more shots on goal, as it were, to get to the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Um, the tissue cipher test does not change the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Everyone who gets the tissue cipher test has Barrett's esophagus. Everyone, at, whether you're low risk or high risk, you still have the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. What the tissue cipher test is, is doing is essentially improving the accuracy of risk prediction to progression to high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma in patients who have already been in diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. So it, it is uh, dependent upon the samples that are taken from the endoscopy procedure itself, but it uses the tissue that's taken in the pro form of SNP biopsies to perform the tissue cipher test on the tissue, on the same tissue that was submitted uh, for biopsy and evaluation by uh, the GI pathologist or anatomic pathologist who's interpreting the biopsy. So I'm interested you know, I'm obviously not a gastroenterologist here, but I'm interested in your experience as a GI physician in managing patients with Barrett's esophagus and and essentially what are some of the challenges that you face in predicting patients who are most at risk for uh, developing high-grade dysplasia or esophageal endocarcinoma in your practice? Um, no, thank you. You know, I think as a, as a gastroenterologist, um, we do, you know, we identify many people have heartburn, indigestion, whatever. And, and if they can, if we can control their symptoms with a little bit of diet adjustment, a um, little bit of over-the-counter medicine once in a while, um, many of those patients never end up getting an endoscopy. Um, and it's interesting. I think most of the 
the majority of the patients that I've seen who uh, presented or uh, with uh, symptoms and been identified as adeno as esophageal cancer um, had very few symptoms before. They, you know, they they're coming in when basically they're obstructing. Um, and they never really had heartburn or indigestion. I think one of the frustrations we have is I see a lot of people with heartburn and indigestion. I see people with uh, a, a cancer, and those weren't the people who necessarily had the heartburn and the indigestion. So how can I identify really a, a condition that is so highly deadly uh, when I don't necessarily have any warning symptoms. That's one of the frustrating uh, parts of uh, esophageal cancer is it's not, not universal that everybody gets heartburn and indigestion, and yet the risk factors are out there. Maybe is there, is there some other history risk factor or some other combination of risk factors that we should be screening people just because they have an esophagus because they, they're just because, which is like colon cancer. Is like if you have a colon, you should get colon cancer screening. Um, if you have an esophagus and you have factor A, B, C, D, E, whatever, maybe you should get screened anyway. Um, and then trying to get that approved, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, as in a workup of esophageal cancer. That's one of the frustrations we have is, unfortunately, so many of the people that we identify, it's too late. You know, they, 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 there were no warning symptoms. They're coming in the first time they're coming in, they're obstructing. Um, and that's 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 frustrating because you, you, if I scoped them 10 years before, we probably could have prevented it. It, 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 it's it's important for, for me to hear that perspective too. And I think that that tracks with some of the clinical practice update changes that are looking at a non-GERD only indication to get a sentinel endoscopy. That there are, I think there could be a moment where people who have symptoms, sorry, have the clinical factors that you're mentioning who, who don't have GERD may also now become eligible for screening endoscopy to try to identify people who may be at risk for esophageal adenocarcinoma, who may be at risk for the precancerous Barrett's esophagus. And it, it's my hope that the tissue cipher test is positioned to better risk stratify those those individuals as they come into care. If we're able to essentially identify more people with this precancerous condition, I think it will further increase the need to refine pathways of risk stratification because there may be just more people needed to be triaged uh, for interventions mm -hmm. like EET, like surveillance endoscopy. And so I really see tissue cipher poised to improve some of those risk stratification paradigms around surveillance and intervention to, like you said, try to identify people at an earlier time point before they're presenting with dysphagia, before they have later stage disease at a time when interventions uh, are more amenable, where patients are more uh, amenable to treatment and hopefully reducing the, the burden of disease for high-grade dysplasia and esophageal adenocarcinoma. So I've seen the, um, the guidelines, the, you know, the guidelines were just redone for the Barrett's follow-up and surveillance. Um, and uh, Tissue Cipher gets a gets a shout out within the algorithm for in, you know follow up of Barrett's, but so does uh, the other test, the Watts 3D uh, test, also gets a shout out that maybe both tests together are better than one test alone. You you have an opinion about whether we should be doing both or just be doing Tissue Cipher, which is which yeah, is better. You, I, what do you have. 
Well, I, th- I think they're in, in some ways apple, apples and oranges, and that I think that they they're they're attempting to achieve different projects. I think I, I see the the test that uh, take different types of samples from the esophagus as really trying to increase the diagnostic yield of identifying more people with Barrett's esophagus, but don't have the ability to essentially peer around the corner to get a, a prognostic benefit. And we view tissue cipher as not impacting whether or not you're diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. This happens after the diagnosis has occurred, but really having this prognostic window that allows clinicians to identify mm-hmm. who in their patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's and even patients with indefinite for dysplasia and low-grade dysplasia, where are the highest risk of progression located within those individuals? And which are the patients where uh, we have the ability to use these non-relevant biomarkers and validated algorithm to identify who, who is at higher risk and lower risk so we can derive essentially treatment algorithms that uh, can best use the resources that we have uh, to direct high-intensity surveillance or early therapeutic interventions, you know, such as you know, EET, uh, to potentially remove precancerous cells um, and intervene at a moment that's earlier in the disease progression for those individuals at highest risk, and in the same way, uh, de-escalate back to mm-hmm. uh, guideline-approved surveillance intervals for those individuals who are actually unlikely to benefit from ther- therapeutic interventions and heightened surveillance. Essentially. Uh, titrating the intensity of our surveillance and therapy based on a better understanding of a patient's risk of progression to high-grade dysplasia in esophageal adenocarcinoma. Uh, as, as certainly as we're being held accountable for total cost of care, it would be nice to not do surveillance on the lowest risk uh, people and sort of say, hey, your, your risk of developing problems is so small, it's not even worth looking again. And then alternatively, uh, identify the few percent of people who should be followed much closer because they much have much higher risk, I think my total cost of care would actually go down. So, uh, Matt, looking at tissue cipher now as an algorithm of multiple biomarkers, do you think the test will change over time? Will other biomarkers be added? Will the tissue cipher of 2023 be different than the tissue cipher of, let's say, 2025? So it, it's, a, it's a good question, Mike, and I think that one of the things that's uh, particular about the diagnostic laboratory space is that um, the tissue cipher assay is in some ways uh, locked in that the nine relevant biomarkers um, that compose the tissue cipher assay uh, have been said and have gone through extensive analytic validity, clinical validity, and clinical utility demonstrating that the test is reproducible, uh, is clinically valid, and essentially uh, does what it says it does, essentially can identify patients at a higher or lower risk of progression to high-grade dysplasia and esophageal adenocarcinoma, and then that clinicians, when they receive the results, are able to uh, make important management changes that are risk-aligned. And and that work has been done with the tissue cipher assay as it stands. We're continuing to perform 
research development and ongoing studies demonstrating the performance of tissue cipher in uh, additional novel cohorts. Uh, there are pooled analyses, one from the Mayo Clinic that uh, was just released that really looked at a large group combining multiple studies to evaluate tissue cipher. Um, and this is the one um, from a prior guest here on, on the, the the podcast, Dr. Dr. Iyer was the lead author here for the Mayo uh, that identified tissue cipher high risk score as you know, identifying patients who are 18 times more likely to progress to high grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma than a patient with a low risk score. This is the type of evidence that I think we'll continue to see the test being evaluated in uh, larger cohorts, novel cohorts, uh, additional uh, analyses, combining these cohorts together to uh, further increase the level of evidence behind the assay itself. The the, the test itself, though, I think will will remain uh, tissue cipher uh, based on the extensive work that's already been done. I do think that we'll continue to, to learn more and identify the groups of patients who benefit uh, from tissue cipher testing. So I think that they'll, we'll see a, a, a lot more about uh, how this test, in particular in non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus patients, can uh, improve risk-aligned management decisions for uh, those patients who are thought as having a historically low risk uh, so that we can essentially make management decisions that are aligned with our patients' individualized risk of progression. Um, and so I think that we'll continue to see new evidence uh, develop for around tissue cipher, but the, the test itself I, I see as uh, having achieved a high level of evidence to incorporate into clinical practice. Um, so my practice, uh, Capital Digestive Care, has a uh, now a state-of-the-art laboratory uh, recognized and is uh, partnering with Roche Diagnostics uh, as a center of excellence. Um, as you look at GI care in the future, um, where, how far can we go with uh, laboratory medicine? Okay, it's it's a it's a great question, and and as a Castle Biosciences, as an advanced diagnostic lab company, we think a lot about laboratory medicine, and one of the things that I like about Castle's tests is that it doesn't seek to replace the important work that pathologists and laboratorians are doing in the course of their clinical care. So the it the tissue cipher test doesn't negate the risk stratification that is provided by a pathologist who can identify the presence or absence of dysplasia or indefinite for dysplasia and the important work that pathologists are doing. It's just that there's inherent subjectivity in that anatomic pathology workflow um, that leads to differences in one laboratory's assessment of dysplasia in case one versus case two. You see uh, downgrading of uh, calls of low-grade dysplasia in community when sent to reference academic centers or reference laboratories with a high level of sophistication, you often find differences in one pathologist's dysplasia versus another pathologist's dysplasia. And that's true country to country, too. There's different practices of how we call that. So I think that there will be continued improvement in laboratory medicine practice where pathologists will continue to refine their ability to identify Barrett's esophagus, identify the presence or absence of dysplasia, and then I see a continued role for advanced diagnostic uh, tests like the prognostic test of tissue cipher to take that information that's provided by high-quality laboratories and layer on a prognostic component to advance the field even further, essentially identifying uh, improving the ability or the resolution around 
important issues such as prognosis, which is the focus of tissue cipher. So I see the advances in the laboratory practice really focusing on on speed, cost, turnaround time, improving the workflow and achieving the diagnosis around Barrett's esophagus, similar to what I was talking about, those other technologies that really have a diagnostic focus and then layering advanced tests for improved prognostication, uh, such as tissue cipher. So I see them working in concert, advances in one uh, pairing well with advances in the prognostic realm of tissue cipher. So um, just, I really appreciate your, your time. Um, and obviously I, I love this uh, stuff uh, personally, but um, you, you're, you know, you went to med school, you got involved in laboratory and histology medicine. Um, we, we work a lot with uh, high school kids and uh, college kids and trying to get people engaged in careers in healthcare. Uh, any advice you would give to a a younger student in uh, college about a career in uh, in this field. Well, I, I, I think like yourself, I've I've had uh, a, a great deal of support and mentorship in my trajectory here, uh, both in becoming a physician and specializing in the field of dermatology, dermatopathology, and translational research. I think if I had to, you know, identify one thing, it's is really get in touch with your curiosity and see what drives you as a, as a learner, as a student, and identify mentors that help shape your thinking. And I feel like I was encouraged to do that uh, beginning in or early on in my education, high school, college, and medical school. And, and when, you, when you do those things, I think you give yourself the best chance to uh, find a career or find a pathway in medicine that matches with your underlying interests and my career has taken turns that I think were unpredictable, but have been uh, quite fulfilling and have led, I think, to a lot of uh, excitement in the work that we're doing here at Castle Biosciences that I think I wouldn't have been able to contribute to had I not taken uh, different steps along the way. And I don't think I would have been speaking here to you about gastroenterology and Barrett's esophagus had it not been for these moments of finding the right mentors and, and, and following a, a passion. Dr. Goldberg, thank you so much for joining me on Gastro Broadcast. I really appreciate the conversation. I hope to catch up with you again uh, as we move along uh, this year. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity here to be part of the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.